I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are things? Good, thanks. So I'm eating a satsuma. <laughs> You're eating a satsuma. We're chilling in, uh, literally chilling, as it is frigidly cold. It is in this, so cold In the down media here. bunker at the back of Chatham House. Why Why is it so cold? Um, is it to punish us? I think from... nominally it's to protect the equipment, but I'm not sure if... Uh, We're the equipment. I'm not sure whose opinions they asked about this, I don't know. But I'm sure there's method in the madness. Is that your phone just going off? My phone's just (laughs) vibrated. We've started successfully, you know. (laughs) Yeah, so what's been going on this week? Because I've been away. I've been... You were poorly. ...at death's door. Yeah. It was literally like the plague or something. I'm sorry. Um, Actually, that's a bit insensitive. It wasn't that bad. (laughs) But it was was bad. It was not amusing. Are you worried about offending people who died of the Black Death? Yeah, (laughs) you know... (laughs) I went to this great exhibition at the Museum of London once and it was... uh, I think I went to that one about the... the, Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, plague doctors didn't used to wear the nose things. Did they not? Is that an urban myth? Some Germans did. I learned that from listening to a great podcast, which I'm not going to tell you about because we don't want rivals. No, no rival pods. Um, But anyway, so yeah, so I'm so I'm back and it's uh, it's been exciting. But I'm actually only back for two days and then I'm off to Australia. It's a really hard life working on a podcast. I know you're going to Australia for how long? Uh, Just under three weeks. That's so a long time. But the thing is, you, it takes so long to get there, mm. you wouldn't want to be there any shorter. It's going to be bloody great, It's going to though. take, like, 20 hours to get there. So why are you going? We're going for a conference. Mm-hmm. International Affairs team are all going to uh, the IPSA World Congress, which is a, a conference of political scientists um, all getting together to discuss the issues of the day. I think it's going to be a lot of Australians and a lot of people from the Asia-Pacific, which mm-hmm. will be interesting because we don't publish tons of work on that, but we're publishing more and more work on it okay. all the time, as evidenced, in fact, by our latest issue, which has just come out, which is a special issue on Japan. Ooh. Japan's pivot in Asia, which is uh, really, really interesting. Well, and also, since you're going to be away for so long, maybe I'm going to have to record... A podcast intro on my own, which I did yesterday, that was so bad that we're doing this today. <laughs> Take two. Take but it wasn't, two. Ag- it wasn't what Agnes said. It was just that, that we were sabotaged by the rogue phone of a contributor. Yeah, so I'm going to be without you three weeks, Ben. It's heartbreaking. I know. Heartbreaking. Oh, sorry about that, mate. Um, so who did you speak to this week? Well, I spoke to Corey Wallace, who is one of the guest editors of our new issue on Japan. Uh, He's based at the Free University in Berlin, um, but he's a proud New Zealander, Mm -hmm. which comes up in the interview. Good. Um, Yeah, a very difficult man to speak to about sport, but but a great man to speak to about Japanese foreign policy. about cricket. And rugby. Oh, and rugby. They sort of rule the world at rugby. Yeah, Um, I forget that rugby's a thing. Um, (laughs) That's a conversation for another day. But uh, yeah, so we spoke to him about Japanese foreign policy and um, how Japan has been reacting to the Trump presidency and all sorts of other interesting things. Awesome. Um, But who did you speak to, Agnes? So I spoke to two Chatham Houses this week. Um, Leslie Vinjamuru, who is head of the US and America's programme and dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy. (gasps) And Hans Kidnani, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Europe Programme at Chatham House. Because Trump has just arrived. He has. In President London. Trump is in London. Is in London. So, um, And he flew to Stansted. 
Second worst airport. <laughs> Second worst airport. I mean, if we were trying to give him a real state visit, he wouldn't have flown to Stansted, would he? Luton. Straight to Luton. <laughs> Straight to Luton. Luton God. is the worst airport. Yeah. yeah, true, but I don't think you could get Air Force One Would it got him into Terminal 5? City. At Heathrow. Yeah, yeah, or City. Yeah, true. City's too small for that. Yeah, fair. Good plane chat. Anyway, yeah, so we discussed the special relationship and... Um, actually, did we? Yeah, we talked about his, you know, NATO NATO and um, what he was, what we think he's trying to accomplish by coming to London and how people are dealing with him in Europe. Amazing. Let's have a listen. So I'm here with Leslie Vindimaru, who is head of the US in America's programme and dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy at Chatham House, and Hans Kudnani, who is the senior research fellow from the Europe programme at Chatham House. Hello. Good morning. (laughs) Hello. Thanks so much for joining us today. So Trump's in town. Trump's going to be in town very soon, and, and I think London is getting ready for him. As mm-hmm. as we as we know, we've, we're expecting what one hundred thousand protesters in a rather large and grand balloon with uh, with nappies attached. I'm very excited, um, and this is the first time he's been to London since he was elected. It um, is not and it's the been first a long time, time coming, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what does this? I suppose a very broad question. What does this visit mean? Uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the policy. They're talking a lot about trade. They're talking about security. I don't think it's really about the policy. I think this trip is is all about the symbolism. It's about the optics that will surround it. I think it's a big act for the UK in public diplomacy. And, and you know, Theresa May and her government uh, will be thinking hard about how they want to frame the Prime Minister's relationship with uh, the President of the United States of America, debating every micro step and what what signal it will send uh, to the people here in the UK, to people in America, to Europe. Um, it's, it's a very big act of signaling because, of course, Theresa May is trying to play a lot of games right now. She's weak at home. She's negotiating, endlessly negotiating Britain's exit from the European Union. And uh, her relationship with America, the UK's relationship with America, is is critical, but it's complicated. And so I think the entire visit is about is about thinking through that, and um, and playing it so that Theresa May looks strong, not too weak, but close to the president, not too close. It's an incredibly tricky visit because of uh, the the frustration and anger. Um, that this president uh, has inspired amongst a lot of people here in the UK, but obviously far beyond. And he's also said that he wants to meet with Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. That's right. He wants to meet with the man who now has you know, the knives out for, for Theresa May. Yeah. I mean, it's been a tough week for Theresa May, I think we can probably honestly say. Um, but there is also that balance, like, as you mentioned, there are lots of people who are planning on turning out to protest. And being seen to be very close to this president at home might not go down hugely well. But there are the trade implications if we're not. I mean, how do you think that balance is going to be struck? Well, yeah, I think it is a difficult um, it is a difficult dilemma, both for Britain and for other EU countries, because, um, you know, there is this reality that Europeans depend on the United States for their security, as well as the economic relationship. 
you know, I've seen a lot of commentary in the last, you know, few months, particularly against the background of this trade war that's kind of beginning, urging Europeans to take a tougher approach. And I think this is a little bit naive. I mean, I think this would be fine if you didn't have this security dependence. But I think you do have to take a slightly different approach um, when you um, when you depend on the United States for your security. Now, the UK is in a different position again because um, I'm not quite sure whether the UK is more dependent or less dependent than other European countries. Um, I mean, in some ways, less dependent. It's you know nuclear power. But you know, on the other hand, the integration with the US military is so tight. Um, that in a sense, Britain is even more dependent than any other European country, it seems to me. So, so that's, a, I think, a very difficult dilemma for, for Theresa May. And I think, I mean, lots of people have been very critical of, of her, the way that she's approached Trump. I think she's roughly got it right, which is, you know, I don't think you can take this very tough confrontational approach um, with, with Trump if, as I say, there's this structural relationship that you need to maintain. And how have other European leaders decided to deal with Trump? We had the Ma- the visit with Macron. What do you think they've been trying to do? Well, I mean, you know, Macron, Merkel, there've been different sort of personal sort of styles, I guess. Um, but it seems to me that nobody has really achieved anything with Trump. Um, and it goes beyond the Europeans, you know. Abe might be, you know, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, it seems to me might be the one leader who has achieved something with Trump. Um, he managed to get Trump to, you know, commit very unequivocally, um, unprompted to the defence of Japan. It's a different context because of China and so on. But um, apart from Abe, it seems to me that none of these different approaches, the slightly more sort of, you know, um, distant confrontational approach that Merkel has taken, the sort of more uh, sort of forward-leaning, buddy-buddy kind of approach that Macron tried. I mean, none of these approaches seem to me to have worked. I don't know what you think. No, they're not, they're not leading. You know, they, they do. They work in the sense that it, they make Trump feel good and they do affirm this sort of relationship between particular individuals, Macron and, and Trump, clearly have an affinity towards each other. But even with Abe, if you look at the broader context, I mean, uh, Japan possibly more than any other country fears for its security right now in the context of Trump's uh, Singapore summit with the leader of North Korea and you know will will that extended deterrence that commitment that America has to Japan how seriously will they take it depending on, on, on what what progresses and with nuclear talks so I think I think uh, what Hans said is exactly right that you know none of these individual meetings between leaders are really resulting and a fundamental change in terms of what Trump actually wants to do. He's coming back to his beliefs that, as we, you know, as he articulated them on the campaign trail, and and I think the other important thing here is that he's not separating his in his mind trade, security. It all goes together. He has a he has a general feeling about Europe, which is that Europe um, is paying too little, not giving enough back to America, and and this is a message that. Uh, is selling very well back at home in the United States. The America First narrative is part and parcel of that. The most critical part is that America has been taken advantage of. It's been taken, the argument goes, it's been taken advantage of on the trade front, on the security front. And so Trump coming to Europe is, you know, he becomes the messenger. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's NATO, uh, the, the question of tariffs um, and trade deals. For him, it's it's all part of one big package. Yeah. I think the other key thing is here is that he really wants to work with with individual leaders. He really does not like this idea that he's coming 
for example, to Brussels and, and faced with a collective organization that has rules, that has norms, much more comfortable when he starts dealing with people one-on-one. -on -one. That's really interesting. I mean, do you think that's the business element, the business background, or he feels he can control the situation more? Or? I think that it's that latter. It's the yeah. control. It's the, it's the, the you know, the, the individual who has an instinct both to bully and to fear bullies. And when, you know, when you're faced with the collective, it's much harder to, to, to control the outcome. Mm. But it seems to me that both in terms of the bilateralism, as opposed to the multilateral approach, and in terms of this um, uh, criticism of European free riding on the security side and on the economic side, basically the Europeans aren't paying enough, it seems to me that it's worth emphasizing that these um, approaches um, predate Trump. Um, seems to me that what Trump has done is to kind of radicalize it, to use a different kind of rhetoric, um, to kind of draw different consequences, to go much further in terms of, you know, what the consequences are of Europeans continuing not to pay. But I think it's worth emphasizing um, that, as I say, they go back at least to the Obama administration. So, you know, during the Obama administration, um, you know, criticism by US officials, including Bob Gates, the defense secretary of free riding allies. Um, and secondly, criticism of um, particularly Germany's current account surplus. You know, so in the Obama administration, the US Treasury puts Germany on a currency manipulation monitoring list already. You know, and so, and as I say, what Trump has done is to, is to step up the rhetoric on this um, and to really raise the possibility of real consequences if there isn't a shift in European policy and in German policy in particular. But the criticisms are widely shared, it seems to me, in, in D.C. And what I see happening now when I follow, um, you know, d debates in D.C. is now this has been very, very polarised by Trump. So, you know, Trump supporters support his, his, his you know, approach on this. But it seems to me that lots of people in the sort of Washington foreign policy establishment um, are now kind of reflexively kind of taking the opposite position um, and, and sort of forgetting that actually... Even under Obama, these they shared these criticisms of, of Europeans and of Germans in particular. And do you think it's a fair criticism? Yes, I do actually. Mm. Well, I think one of you know, there's we have to. I, I, this is exactly right that these criticisms are this critique is not new. Um, but the the thing that's new, right? You have to differentiate between the critique, right, identifying the problem, um, and the solutions that are being proposed. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think this is one of the reasons that I think you see a real difference of opinion. Um, in Washington and beyond, it's, it's one thing to say there's a problem with the current account surplus, there's a problem with Europeans' defense spending for their own, their own contribution to their own defense. Um, but it's quite another thing to say that the, the appropriate response, the wise response, yes. the solution that gets, that solves the problem is to reply with tariffs, right? 25% yes. uh, uh, steel, 10% aluminum. Um, that and to you know put America and and Europe in a position where we're talking about escalating a trade war. That's mm. that's very different. And, and the the key problem here is that those who really support Trump, not the experts, right, but the the core of his base who aren't working on trade as part of their daily lives, they understand the problem. They're sympathetic with the problem. They don't really have the time, energy, or training to know whether the solution is going to get us to a better place. So right. they take they have to take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And I think this is this is a real danger because if the problem seems right, 
if the emotion is 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 the target and people become very energized around that then the willingness to sort of support any solution regardless any notion of whether or not it will actually lead to better things or worse things uh, is you know it's very likely to follow it it doesn't it's not taking to us to the to the place where people really want to go and even if this is successful it doesn't really matter because you'll have to create more drama there'll just be another line there'll be another reason to be annoyed with Europe or not to be happy about NATO well I mean the other thing to remember of course is that he's always got his domestic audience in mind he's always got those midterm elections but even beyond the midterm elections he just likes the drama in part because it's what keeps that approval rating so sticky yes it's moved up or down a few percentage points you know depending on what's going on but 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 it's more or less steady and part of why it's steady is because he does play these politics and people are watching them um, back home so I think it you know there are multiple things going on there but I guess you know th there's there's a couple of ways of evaluating it on the one hand yes maybe it will lead the Germans to change their to change their policies and maybe there's or the EU right in the context of trade NATO when it comes to security or individual nations that are might looks like many of them will increase their defense spending um, but but you have to look at it in my view in the round right at what cost and there, there are other costs, you know, there, there are these sort of narrow measures of uh, defense spending, of uh, trade, tra the terms of trade. But there are also these questions about, you know, identity, about politics, about who's in, about who's out, about how you behave. And, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is frequently laced with a lot of identity politics that are very exclusionary, that come at a very high price, that um, create the opportunity for all sorts of mobilization along lines that I think are very dangerous, that go against um, many of the values that have been critical uh, in Europe, post-war, post-Cold War, um, and in the United States that are hard fought. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's, it's part of a broader narrative that I think it's dangerous really to dismiss um, those those broader concerns because Trump's appeal isn't just, you know, it, the narrative isn't just we've been treated unfairly. It's, it, there is a, there's an identity politics wrapped up in it, um, it, which we all sort of know, but we're not quite sure what to do with. Mm -hmm. And there are moments when we talk about it, Charlottesville, but it's, it's there, it's integrated throughout. And so I, there's a, I think there's a real question on this trip, you know, what's, what are the underpinnings of, of some of those narratives? And it's, remember, it's why the balloon is up. The balloon is up because the mayor of London um, recognizes this president as being uh, a president who doesn't care about Muslims, who actually has undertaken policies that are exclusive. Um, and the mayor is Muslim, and the mayor represents multiculturalism, and so it's not just about trade, it's not just about security, it's very much about what kind of nations we're trying to construct mm. and what globalism and internationalism mean. And it seems to me that the tone of the protests is going to be very much, or this is my impression so far, it's going to be very much, you know, we love America, we hate Trump. Mm. Um, and I think that is an, a, sort of an important distinction to make. And in a way, that the, you know, we're having the same or similar fights in, in Britain and throughout the West, right? So actually, you know, this isn't so much a British-American kind of rift that's being expressed in these protests, it seems to me. It's a, it's a rift that actually runs through both countries. Um, and so you mentioned, you know, the mayor of London. Well, you know, cities, you know, in America all hate Trump too, 
right? So, so to some extent, this is about, you know, it's about all of these fault lines that have been exposed by Trump and, and Brexit, one of which is urban-rural, right? So, you know, it's not surprising that, that a city like London would, would, would kind of be, um, be, a, be opposed to Trump. It is, I think, maybe worth, you know, putting the, the, the visit to Britain in yeah. this context of, you know, the, the NATO summit beforehand and then the trip to Moscow afterwards. And, and actually, that's that's probably the most significant part of this in the end is is the, the, the first um, face-to-face meeting with Putin. That's right. And that's the one that he really wants. He's wanted that relationship. He's wanted that meeting. He's, I imagine, going to spend a significant part of the next few days of meetings in Brussels and uh, in the UK being distracted by what lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Signaling, a lot of what he says certainly at the NATO summit will be you know, signaling towards Russia and, and especially towards Putin You know what page he's on. He'll be thinking about that very much because for whatever reason, I mean people have debated what that reason is quite a lot, um, he cares a lot about how that meeting will go. And he said that he thinks that might be the easiest of the three parts of the trip. (laughs) Easier than meeting Theresa May and the Queen and the NATO summit. Syria, Ukraine, uh, Iran, all on arms control, all on the agenda. Can't see how that's easy, but for this president, it it actually is. And why is he so... Why is he looking forward to this meeting with Putin so much? Well... Why is that the goal? You know, I think think what, what most people say, and I think it's right, is that he... He just feels more comfortable. That's the zone that he likes. That's the person that he likes. The politics are not easy. And actually, as we all know, the United States under even this president has taken a tougher line on Russia in, in the aftermath of the Skripal, uh, that the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. was strong. The response was robust and supported. Um, sanctions have gotten more intense, not less. Uh, the domestic pressure as a result of the investigations in Russia have constrained Trump at some level. Um, and even recently he indicated that you know there shouldn't that there is a concern for uh, meddling in the elections and that that should be taken seriously. So he knows all this, but still he likes the person. He likes the strength. He likes the character. I think he appreciates um, he doesn't appreciate elitism in terms of its outward manifestations and Putin doesn't have those things uh, and European leaders on the whole for the you know for the most part do do you think there's a gender element too when it comes to Merkel May Putin we talk about strong men and you know the Macron brotherhood stuff but nobody's really talking about whether or not he can talk to women on a similar level mm-hmm. We have so few examples. We do. Yeah. <laughs> we have so few well, examples is... of female leaders that it's hard to read off of, of two examples. Mm. But I mean, it's but certainly quite is, big ones. They yes. are very significant ones. Yes, um, and uh, uh, my impression is that there is a gender element to it. That that um, I remember discussing this in you know in DC after in the first couple of months of the, of the presidency. You know, the first time he met with May, the first time he met with Merkel, Abe, as I mentioned earlier on, and you know. Um, it, it did seem to me as if Merkel and May were starting from a much harder place because they couldn't go and you know bond with um, Trump over a round of golf in the way that in the way that Abe um, did. Um, so I mean, it does it does seem as if it's you know it's maybe not impossible for a female leader to to bond with Trump, but it does seem like it's not his comfort zone. Um, but on the other hand, as I say, apart from Abe, it's not clear to me that 
you know, Macron has actually achieved anything, for example. Mm. So, you know, the, the optics may be slightly better, um, but I think there's been so much focus on these handshakes, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, as if that's what international politics is all about, is, is that kind of personal chemistry. But, you know, as I say, didn't really achieve anything in Macron's case. So it's, it's not obvious that actually Macron has been... I mean, people say this routinely now in the media, that somehow Macron has a better relationship with Trump, but it's not clear to me that he really does. He hasn't actually achieved anything. No, that's right. He, he didn't succeed in getting Trump to rethink his position on the Iran deal. Tariffs came not long after the last visit that Macron had with mm -hmm. with Trump, so no, it hasn't hasn't changed things. I mean, I'm worried about what happens when Trump returns home. Right now, there's a lot of intensity, a lot of focus on what's going on, but these are really, you know, the, the issues that he's coming across to talk about are very serious. Mm -hmm. Future of trade, European security right now in a context where Russia is digging its heels in and, and, and where a lot of European uh, countries feel at risk that their security is uh, at risk and where, you know, America under this leader doesn't take that seriously. Although he's mixed on that, right? He talks about perhaps putting a permanent force in Poland at the same time that he's cozying up to, to Putin. Um, but really serious issues, and this is a golden opportunity, um, or should be a golden opportunity for Europe, for America, um, for the U.S. and Russia to, to address really difficult issues and then to have follow-through. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need right now. Um, and, but unfortunately, given the context that's been created by under this presidency, it doesn't look like we're going to get the kind of follow-through, the kind of meetings or the kind of follow-through that we really need uh, to move forward on, you know, the most significant issues in, in transatlantic relations. It's, it's, it's very, you know, there's a lot of drama. It's sort of interesting. It's quite exciting. But it's really troubling, actually. Mm -hmm. And a slightly contrast question on the NATO front. I mean, Russia and Putin has always found NATO very difficult and has reacted in certain ways because of what he perceives to be the threat of NATO. Well, the threat of certain things. If the US were to sort of pull back from that, do you think that would actually ease tensions between Europe and Russia? It's a good question. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, I think smart people disagree about this. Um, so, um, I mean, I, think, I guess, first of all, it depends what you mean by sort of pulling back. But mm. if, you're, if you're suggesting um, that, you know, the US pulls its troops out of... Um, out of um, Europe and the Baltic states in particular. Um, I mean, I, I don't know because I, I think there's a there's a sort of black box at the part of, you know, there's, there's a black box about Trump. We don't really understand what, how Trump functions. Um, but there's also a black box in terms of Russian policy making. Um, and, you know, not just smart people, Russia experts, it seemed to me, seems to me disagree about what motivates Russian policy, what has led to the shift, the sort of increasing anti-Western turn in Russian policy over the last 10 years. Um, and as I say, it seems to me that some smart Russia experts do argue that this is a consequence of NATO enlargement mm -hmm. um, and certain other actions that the West has taken. Now, that's not to justify any of Russia's responses in sort of moral terms, no. but in terms of the causality, I mean, it seems to me it is an open question about, um, you know, whether um, Western, US, European actions 
because um, EU enlargement is 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 a big part of this too. The yeah. thing that in the end, you know, was the catalyst for the Ukraine crisis wasn't really anything to do with NATO. It was a it was a association agreement between the European Union and Ukraine. Um, so Europeans are part of this story too. It seems to me it's not just about U.S. actions, but it's really unclear whether, um, you know, actually part of the reason for this increasing Russian aggression um, and sort of the anti-Western turn is a response to to Western action. Now, as I say, that it, it becomes very um, difficult because the moment you make that point, people see you as drawing some kind of moral equivalence between Russia and the West, which I'm not doing. Mm. But I'm just, you know, trying to. Um, think about the causality and it does seem to me to be a, a, an open question I don't have the answer to that I mean there, there's no doubt that Russia since the end of the Cold War has been increasingly dissatisfied that it hasn't been central to the conversations and especially the institutions that are at the forefront of creating and recreating the European order um, and that it's wanted in, right? For a long time, it, it wanted the, o the CESCE and then the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, to be the central uh, organization for thinking these issues through because they felt that they could be part of it and they're not part of NATO. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I guess a couple of things here. One is that, you know, NATO, it is clear that, at least to me, that, that Russia thinks differently about those about Ukraine, mm -hmm. right, a country that's not part of NATO, than it does about um, the Baltics uh, or Poland that have that security guarantee. So that security guarantee, I think, has been significant. Yeah. But also, um, even if you know, even if the U.S. does under Trump walk back from NATO, uh, you can't just create a void, mm -hmm. right? You still got to have a strategy. You've still got to have an, another institution or another set of ideas and arrangements for creating security and confidence in that part of Europe. And America inevitably will be want to be part of those discussions. So if you erode the existing institutional architecture without putting something else in, in its place, and if you erode the relationships between the United States, Germany, the United States, France, the United States, the United Kingdom, it just becomes that much more difficult to rethink the strategy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so even if you know, even if we take the arguments very seriously that have been put forth, and they are, as Han said, very credible arguments, that there's something that that hasn't worked well about NATO enlargement. Um, the the current strategy for walking back, if that's what's happening, isn't going to result in in a in a better vision mm -hmm. um, of Europe's security. I wonder whether, um, this is somewhat speculative, but I've been wondering whether what might be happening sort of de facto is something between, you know, the status quo and the complete dissolution of NATO. And, and, and what I mean by that is a kind of bilateralization of security guarantees mm -hmm. so that, you know, instead of collective security in Europe, what you have is, as I say, de facto, you know, NATO continues to exist, but, but in practice what you have is a series of bilateral American security guarantees to different NATO countries. And the strength of those security guarantees depend on, first of all, how much you spend on defence, right? So if you meet the 2%, you're in relatively good shape. And secondly, whether you have US troops on your soil. So the Poles do. Um, so, you know, they're in they're in pretty good shape it seems to me they spend two percent they have american troops there 
Um, and so that makes them pretty safe, it seems to me. But if you're Lithuania and you don't quite spend 2% of your GDP on defence and you have German troops on your soil as part of the NATO, um, the NATO sort of reassurance um, initiative, um, then I think you look a lot more vulnerable. Um, so I think there's this differentiation of the security guarantees going on. And there's, say, at the heart of it, you have Germany. So you can imagine a situation where, um, you know, the, 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 where it's really not clear that the US is committed to the security of Germany, mm. but it is committed to the security of Poland. And that creates all kinds of dilemmas yeah. for Europeans, it seems to me. Also, as soon as you start to differentiate between European nations and who's more important in that factor, it's very dangerous, I think. That's right. And it's, uh, you know, it's complicated. Mm. It's costly. It's time consuming. It's time consuming for the United States. Right now, the United States has the convenience of, you know, a one stop shop in Europe. They want to coordinate their security conversations. I mean, there is a, you know, there's an argument for having more leverage and bilateral relationships. But you're, you know, you're asking a lot of a country, its administration, its strategic capacities, its ability to implement maybe America is going to return to having that capacity at the moment. There's nothing to suggest that it does have the capacity to manage those bilateral security relationships effectively. Um, but it's a whole lot trickier. There's a lot more, there's, I would argue, there's a lot greater prospect for misunderstanding, for mistakes, for miscalculation, for accidents. Once you move to a situation where you're not working collectively mm -hmm. and where you're trying to coordinate and play off because that's I think in effect what ends up happening right you're playing off yeah. different bilateral relationships against each other so it's a it's very tricky situation it hasn't produced you know security in in East Asia has been managed bilaterally by yes, the United exactly. States mm -hmm. and it hasn't produced a more secure environment yeah. now there are a lot of complicating factors there but it has not produced a more stable mm. region than we've seen in Europe in the post in the post war and post Cold War era, even in the post Cold War era. So I've got one final question for you both. If you were a European leader, what would be your strategy with Trump? Would you go in for the handshakes, you know, the the hugs or yeah, what do you think you would do? I, I think it depends which European country you are. Oh, lot. hands. Okay, um, so pick if, one. If I'm Germany, I think it's very different from the, the United Kingdom. Um, but but also, I think it depends on. Uh, well, part of the reason why it matters is is because it depends on the willingness and ability of your publics to do certain things. Mm -hmm. So you know, my criticism of Merkel's approach has been, you know, she says, you know, that Europe needs to take its own security, you know, its security into its own face into its own hands, but then she's either unwilling or unable to do what it would take in order to make that a reality, i.e. spend a lot more money on defence. So it seems that in that situation, then you can't take this confrontational approach to, to Trump. You have to kind of suck it up mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and, and sort of try and be as nice to him as possible. Um, you can take a confrontational approach if you want, but then you have to be prepared, as I think France is in a position to do, much more than Germany, um, to actually say, OK, well, you know, try and move Europe towards strategic autonomy and actually spend money on defence. So, as I say, I think it depends on the, the, the country and the, 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 you know, what you're actually able to do. 
But I think that what you're saying is you'd roll out the red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try the UK. So the, the, the conversation that I've found myself waking up and, and mulling over is, is that which one presumes will take place between the Queen, Her Majesty, and um, Donald Trump. And I think this, this could really be very fruitful. I can just imagine Queen Elizabeth II saying, you know, Donald, we understand you've got a point, but really, you need to step it up. I mean, I think she has the ability to, to talk straight with this president. <laughs> She's met with She's many a world all. leader. She's got plenty of pragmatism, wisdom, intelligence, certainly moral, moral credibility. Um, but I, I suspect he would respect her. And I, and I think for the UK, you know, I, I do actually mean this quite seriously. I'm very intrigued about how that mm. conversation will take place. I, I'm quite intrigued as well about that meeting, partly because it seems to me that something very interesting happened um, with the royal family and the Obama administration, actually. Mm. I mean, there was this interesting relationship that developed there. And especially amongst the younger generation, in particular, Harry. Right. Yeah. And so yes. and then the royal Harry wedding, you know, Obama. although neither Trump nor Obama was there, there this was a royal wedding <laughs> in the spirit of the Obama administration. Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, very clearly. Yes. And so I wonder whether Trump is kind of um, conscious of that. Mm. Um, and sort of senses that the royal family is kind of on the Obama's side of this yes. kind of um, fault line. And we know, you know, the one, one of the things we do know about Trump is that he opposes everything that Obama stood for. So uh, that would be very yes, but I think I think he'll respect the Queen. And also, I think there's, if there's, a, you know, the going back to the gender question, I think if there's any female that this, this particular president will respect, I do actually think he'll respect the Queen and that she will be able to have a serious conversation with him. Um, but, but, I, I mean, I think on the UK more generally, there's got to be a, a bit of a red carpet, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he's the president of the United States of America. It's not significant that he's the president. It's very significant that the people of America, however flawed the institutions might be, the Electoral College, it's the one we've used for a very long time now, and it did elect this president. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, taking that person seriously there have been plenty of leaders who have a lot of blood on their hands, a lot of human right, patchy human rights records at best, who have been well received by the United Kingdom. Uh, which isn't to say you don't call it out. There's always a question of what you call out. You absolutely should. The protests need to be there. They're very significant. They play a very important role. But, you know, a, a grand welcome, a serious welcome, but a really serious conversation that signals to Americans that uh, that the UK is taking the president seriously, the concerns that are being expressed very seriously, but challenging in a deep way the solutions that are being proposed mm -hmm. and embracing, you know, the solutions that, that the UK thinks are, are optimal, I think is, is really where it needs to be. Thank you both very much for coming to speak to us. Thank good, you. To, good to talk. So today I'm joined by Corey Wallace, who is a research fellow in the Graduate School of East Asian Studies at the Free University in Berlin. And he is also a guest editor of the new July issue of International Affairs, which has just gone online, titled Japan's Pivot in Asia, which is a special issue that looks at the changing pressures on Japanese foreign policy in relation to its kind of Asian neighbourhood. Mm -hmm. um, Corey, thanks so much for joining mm -hmm. us. No, thanks for having me, Ben. Um, 
I just thought it would be interesting to begin just by kind of setting the scene about kind of traditional Japanese foreign policy since the 20th century. So could you tell us something about the kind of traditional relationships that Japan has had with relation to the US and its Asian neighbours? Right. If, if we think about it in economic terms, Japan's obviously had very diverse relations and has diversified it over the 20th century. But uh, one thing that was not so diversified, of course, was its security relationship. And since the end of World War II, Japan has been an ally, sometimes reluctant ally, but an ally solely with the United States. But over the last decade or so, we have started to see Japan diversifying its not only its economic relations and continue to do so, but also its security relations. And to the point where it's uh, very regularly having training and providing uh, capability assistance to many different countries in Southeast Asia, to Australia, to India, and so forth. So where did this special issue kind of come from? What was the what was the thinking behind looking at this now? So we first sort of put together the idea for a, uh, a volume in about 2015, uh, Professor Samuels and I, and already we had sort of detected in the debate in Japan a number of uh, prominent people talking about how Yes, okay, it's great that the US, especially under Obama, has this pivot to Asia, and they seem to want to reinforce the Japan relationship. But still, if we look at the long-term trends, we're a little bit worried. Will the United States have the not only the capability in terms of uh, being able to fund its massive military um, in the long term, but will it be willing to do so um, with the population in the US tiring of foreign wars um, becoming a little bit resentful of being seen as a global policeman. This is, these are the themes that have been coming through United States foreign policy for many decades, but this sort of popped up again. So anyway, Japanese uh, thinkers, strategic thinkers, had already sort of uh, sort of started worrying about these kinds of issues. Of course, what happened during the process of putting together this uh, volume was uh, some quite remarkable changes in the global and uh, regional scene. So if we focus on a few, obviously Brexit was a big... In fact, Brexit took place on the second day of our first conference on this topic. And the first day was very interesting. We were there sort of talking away. We were analysing the broader trends uh, and so forth, maybe in a very scholarly sort of way. Then we came, everyone turned up on the second day and the, US, uh, the UK had just voted to leave the EU and we were like yeah. completely different uh, atmosphere. <laughs> um, it's one of these shocks that you just don't expect. It's not a long-term trend. It's a thing that you have to look at here and now. So that was just the very first thing, maybe not directly related to Asia, but it sort of tells you how quickly some things can change. Mm. And of course, five months after the first conference we held on this, uh, Trump was elected the president of the United States. And this has, a, given what he said during the, the campaign, uh, this would obviously have a lot more effect on Asia and what you know, what would the US military presence or posture be? Would Trump do what he said he was going to do, et cetera, et cetera? Over time, there has been some back and forth. The Japanese actually were very uh, proactive in reaching out to the United States and to try and almost tame President Trump, and mm-hmm. it seemed to be working for a while, to the point where Trump was consulting with Prime Minister Abe about his China policy. Uh, but the last six months, that's changed again, and uh, between... Trump's increasingly unpredictable behaviour at home and abroad, um, including towards traditional allies in Europe and even in East Asia, the Japanese themselves have started to worry if maybe they will be on the hard end at some point in time. So just to pick up on what on something you said earlier, you said that increasingly Japan is diversifying its security assistance. I think there's a perception, um, at least in 
in the UK that Japan is quite a sort of pacifist nation. You don't think of it in terms, at least obviously post Second World War, you don't right. think of it in terms of this kind of military power. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a perception that maybe it, it relies very much on the US from a military and security point of view right. to kind of guarantee its place, sure. um, particularly in relation to China, perhaps. Is that is that a kind of accurate portrayal? Or is this something that Japan has been building up? Um, and is it is it a kind of autonomous actor? Does it have capability to defend itself? Right. I mean, this, this is the, the question, really, in regards to Japan is clearly its uh, military posture is changing. And it's been changing for decades. But the changes are always very incremental mm-hmm. and very slow. You never see any rapid sort of change taking place. Perhaps the most rapid changes come under the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abe. But even then, it's been still restrained by what, what, what you would say is pacifist sentiment. Abe has a reputation as being quite hawkish. Mm-hmm. Now, in the international context, he probably isn't. But in the Japanese context, he clearly is. Yeah. And because he also has a uh, number of... Uh, how should we say, conservative commitments and a sort of conservative uh, view of uh, social order and political uh, norms, uh, there is still some suspicion about uh, Abe that hasn't gone away. So he's been a reasonably popular prime minister in terms of being seen as competent and stable and uh, responsible. But in terms of the Japanese public wanting to trust him to undertake the reforms that actually the Japanese public kind of understands needs to be done to the constitution and so forth uh, yeah. regarding Japan having a, a military. Like uh, my One of my personal research topics is on uh, public opinion and so forth, and actually the Japanese public is not as pacifist as people uh, imagine. Right. Generally speaking, if you take it, if you ask them uh, sort of uh, questions outside of political context, and um, what I mean by that is it depending on who is advocating reform. And in this particular case, Abe is putting a lot of energy into trying to make these reforms, but it is he himself sometimes uh, in his uh, political um, commitments that sometimes get in the way. Mm-hmm. And so I think to, to answer your question is that the Japanese public have been open to these changes. So we talk about um, increased uh, tempo and in military exercises with uh, our partners throughout the region, providing security assistance and so forth. But they want to see it done in a very incremental way, in a mm-hmm. way that, I guess if we were to sort of boil it down, it doesn't look like Japan is contributing to destabilization of regional um, security and right. the balance of deterrence and so forth. Mm. So I, I guess if Japan was to come on too aggressively, that might stimulate a security dilemma. And the Japanese public really don't want to see Japan being the one that destabilizes their own neighborhood because... Right. To be honest, they're the ones perhaps who are most vulnerable to any kind of um, conflict if it happened. And so, um, yeah, just to follow up on that, what's the perception of the major threats to Japan? Is it, I mean, China is presumably historically and currently the major the major threat, but what other countries are they worried about and what, what sort of security dilemmas do you think they'll, they could conceivably put themselves in? What do they worry about? So it depends on who you're talking talking to. So... Um, if you're talking to uh, people in the government, officials, um, people who think for a living, they actually see China as a, a bigger threat, mm-hmm. I think. some You could almost say, perhaps cynically, that uh, North Korea was a convenient excuse for Japan starting to militarize much more so in the 90s and the early 2000s until now. 
Um, for the public, it's, it's it's a slightly different sort of thing. I mean, China is seen as a threat, not just sort of in a military way, but from a, a whole range of points of view, mm. including uh, you know the threat of dangerous Chinese pollution and food and various things like that. But at this point in time, it seems to me that the North Korean issue still has the um, biggest uh, ability to stimulate public concern at this point in time. Right, mm-hmm. and. In some ways, uh, the Japanese public, interestingly, actually is more confident in American staying power than the Japanese elites are. And this is a very uh, interesting sort of dynamic. They actually are not very confident that China will eventually replace the U.S. militarily or even economically um, in the next 10 years or so. While Japanese elites are a lot more pessimistic about this sort of development. How were the recent events in Singapore received in Japan? Obviously, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un from North Korea met Mm. uh, and ended up agreeing to what some commentators have described as quite a a vague, non-committal accord. Mm. But in Japan, how was that that viewed? Not too well. Really? Mm. Yeah, I mean... We just still don't know what's going to come out of it yet. And, you know, maybe there are some deals that were struck behind the scenes that we don't know about. And maybe there there is a genuine ten, uh, trend towards peace. Uh, there are a lot of uh, opinions about this um, out there right now. But from the Japanese point of view, what they're very, very uh, concerned about is any sort of lukewarm deal which involves only a sort of partial denuclearization or demilitarization of um, the peninsula to, to the point where maybe North Korea can still keep some of their shorter and medium-range missiles, mm. um, which could still reach Japan. Japan. Yeah. yeah, but would get rid of those uh, capabilities that would uh, pose a threat to the United States. Sure. Mm. So this this is, a, in, in a concrete sense, this is the thing that they're most concerned about. Uh, but it's also the sort of general atmosphere around Trump that is also a problem. And, you know, whether or not he was just being made a fool of or whether he was playing up a what was rather a very modest agreement into something much bigger and more important than it was. Yeah. You know, I guess a lot of Japanese will question his judgment because they've gone through, uh, the various countries in the area have gone through many uh, iterations of striking deals with North Korea, um, which have made the same kinds of commitments mm. only for them to be uh, not fulfilled for various reasons. So there's some skepticism of just this sort of general approach to foreign policy by Trump. Um, There's some worries that uh, he's very transactional and that, as I said, he might accept a deal which puts Japan, uh, makes Japan vulnerable, but uh, protects the US's uh, security. And there's a third thing would also be uh, whether the abduction issue is taken seriously. This is something in Japanese domestic politics that a Japanese prime minister must be seen to be working towards solving in one way or form. It may not be right. solvable, but mm-hmm. they can't just say, oh, well, let's put this aside, Yeah, which all the other countries in the region would love Japan to do, but it's something that is very difficult to do. they can't do. Mm. Interesting. Um, turning now to sort of economic matters, obviously one of the first things that the Trump administration did was, was uh, condemn and pull out of any US participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Japan was also involved in that 
in that yes. partnership. So what, I mean, I imagine that that was received quite poorly in Japan, but mm. what has happened since, um, what has Japan aimed to do? Are they, are they aiming to sort of forge on ahead with the remaining countries? How have they adapted their stance? So what has actually been one of the interesting things, and from a person who's uh, studied Japanese uh, foreign policy, uh, perhaps one of the pleasing things to see out of this was actually Japan didn't sort of sit back and say, oh, well, we, we haven't got the US, we won't be able to do anything. Uh, uh, Abe, and in cooperation with countries like uh, Australia, New Zealand, and then once they got Singapore and so forth on board, actually decided to push on through uh, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership or a modified version of it. And this is very interesting. It's, uh, I think, you know, that right now there's a lot of focus on China and the US and the competition economically, militarily, and so forth. Perhaps we're having a trade war. But for me, it's, it's very interesting uh, to see uh, the sort of middle powers, original powers coming together and trying to sort of show that the, the alternative to, say, for example, reliance on the United States isn't necessarily being dominated by China and, and vice versa. Like they themselves can actually affect if they cooperate with each other, and that's the key thing, um, can actually affect, of course, the, tr the rules about trade and so forth and investment that is part of the TPP, but the general geopolitical balance of power as well. I mean, this is, to a certain degree, it comes out of my own bias as a person from uh, New Zealand. Um, but we, I think it's, it's a very good uh, sign and a very pleasing sign to see um, greater Japanese leadership on something that is important to the whole region. So another sort of maybe slightly longer term tension in Southeast Asia is China's sort of ambitions or perceived ambitions in the South China Sea. And you write about that in one of your articles in right. the issue. Um, how has Japan kind of responded to that? So Japan is sort of trying to walk a, a, a tightrope here. It wants to be seen both to demonstrate to the United States as well as to uh, its partners concerned about the South China Sea and Southeast Asia that it's not uninterested in their problems and so forth. Sure. And Japan has been providing capacity support. It's been providing <clears throat> diplomatic support as well. And it's also been showing showing the flag, so to speak, by sending more uh, Japanese naval vessels to and through the South China Sea over the last five or six years. So there's been a, an uptick in military activity by the Japanese maritime self-defense forces and, and so forth. So that's definitely um, one aspect of it. However, Japan has a couple of concerns uh, that might prevent it from perhaps being even more committed to the South China Sea, at least in the short to medium term anyhow. And one of them is that just a resourcing issue. I mean, Japan still spends only 1% of its GDP on defense spending. Right. Its shipbuilding budget is still is, is not going up, despite all this talk of Abe being revolutionary in foreign pol in security policy and so forth. So that's just a very simple matter, and it relates to a second point, which is that if Japan gets more involved in the South China Sea, this could antagonize China. What does China do? It sort of puts the pressure on in Northeast Asia, in and around Japan's own core maritime interests, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So you, you end up sort of undermining yourself potentially there if you stimulate a Chinese annoyance and they um, fight back in that way. And the third is that, yes, the, the 2015 peace and security legislation um, opened up greater space for Japan to work with military partners beyond Northeast Asia in and around potential conflicts and so forth. Yeah. 
But whether that extends to the South China Sea and how much is uh, is actually still an open question. Will Japan really be able to provide uh, robust support during a South China Sea conflict between, say, the US and uh, China or the US and the Philippines and China or so forth? Is actually still an open question. You know, what level of support will they provide? Yes, probably they will be able to do sort of minesweeping during a, a ceasefire, but that's not quite the same as being at the front line of a, an engagement. So I would fully expect to still see Japan providing a lot of capacity building support for regional militaries and so forth mm-hmm. over the next five to ten years. And yeah, it will, I'm sure it will keep up the current pace of presence activities, so to speak by sending the Maritime Self-Defence Forces and the yeah, Self-Defence Forces to South China, the South China Sea. And, you know, the traditional role it's had there of uh, providing disaster relief and so forth will definitely be a major factor. Whether Japan will sort of get stuck in inside the South China Sea and sort of uh, demonstrate that it's committed to more directly balancing against China is, I think, a, a more open question, however. Several of the articles in the issue uh, deal kind of with bilateral relationships mm-hmm. between Japan and its and specific neighbours. Mm. I was wondering whether you could quickly evaluate which one of those articles kind of presents the most positive picture for those specific relationships. So um, obviously James Brown has written on mm-hmm. uh, Russia-Japan sure. relations. Uh, Rohan Mukherjee has written a really interesting article on um, India and mm-hmm. Japan. And uh, John Hemmings and Tomohiko Satake have written mm-hmm. also on uh, the Japan-Australia alliance. Sure. So just maybe taking those three um, or add in more if you'd like, sure. which ones do you think are most likely to be kind of fruitful Japan in going so, forward? So there are four big relationships, I think, uh, that are covered by this special issue. And there's a fifth article, um, which uh, I authored, which looks at the sort of uh, more granular relationships with countries in Southeast Asia and beyond. But uh, of the big relationships, the two that have gone th- forward most positively over the last decade or so, of course, are the um, India and Australian relationship. If we were to analyse them in terms of which ones have been which of those two have been the most successful? I'd say the Australia relationship. The two countries have become closer and closer mm-hmm. institutionally, uh, militarily, and uh, also, as I just said, with the TPP, economically. They're trying to show an alternative uh, way to approach economic issues. But the relationship with the most potential, of course, is the one with India. Right. But this is actually still quite diff- a difficult relationship. Not because the Indians uh, have a lot of problems with Japan. In fact... Um, because of India's uh, emphasis on, on autonomous foreign policy, it still has uh, problems with countries like you know, the United States, for example. They've gone closer, clearly, but it's not necessarily that India's running into the United States' arms or anything like that. Mm-hmm. India still very much tries to balance all of the big powers and so forth. But Japan, it's willing to let Japan a little bit more closer than some of the other bigger powers. But still, it's complicated by various domestic barriers in India, and uh, India's foreign policy is also not always as coherent as perhaps some would like mm-hmm. externally. So the India relationship that uh, Rohan talks about, I would characterize as being the one with the greatest potential, but still has a long way to go, while the Australian one is perhaps the most intimate so far. But I do think of the relationships that are not working so well, the Russia one that James Brown um writes about is, is is worthy of keeping an eye on in the long mm-hmm. term. Uh, James is, is very 
pessimistic about what could happen in the short term, especially in regarding to territorial issues and so forth. But if Abe or uh, people, conservatives with similar views to Abe stay in power, they very, very much want to bring Russia into the geopolitics of uh, Northeast Asia much more vigorously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since before, even before World War Two, there was there's always been a sort of general strategic tendency to want to have Russia and China balancing each other on the continent. Sure. And this hasn't really necessarily changed, and it didn't even change after World War II when Japan was um, the most pacifist, so to speak. So how the two countries developed their economic relationship, which is probably the easiest thing for them to do in the short term, short to medium term, and what the long-term implications of that is worth is something worth keeping an eye on. Mm-hmm. But the prospects for some grand great breakthrough in the relationship in the next few years I think is probably quite low but it's it's a very interesting topic nonetheless. Mm. I'd like to draw to a close if I may with just one more question which is that there's been quite a lot of domestic tension in Japan recently right. particularly surrounding Prime Minister Abe. Right. And I was wondering whether whether you think it's likely that these t- tensions are going to end up in him leaving? Will, mm. will he leave his position? And if so what impact is that likely to have on Japanese foreign policy specifically um, moving forward? That's a good question, very good question. Uh, so to address the first part of that question, as it stands today, mm-hmm. and I might check Twitter when I get out of here, and it <laughs> might have changed, uh, there have been no new revelations on some of the uh, doc- document tampering accusations that have really been the only thing that have um, been causing him trouble the last year or two. Right. So it seems like he's got that under control and uh, there's enough plausible deniability to uh, ensure that he will continue mm-hmm. as Prime Minister, certainly to the end of his current term. And he's recovered enough support amongst LDP supporters, which is who ultimately choose him for the third term as President and Prime Minister, right. effectively. Uh, there's enough support amongst those people for him to continue on as it stands right now for okay. a third term. So if something new is revealed, who knows? It could be up for grabs. Um, I think this time around, unlike last time, there will actually be a challenger mm-hmm. um, to Abe. The question will be whether they uh, present a realistic challenge or if it's uh, just a matter of going through the motions. Yeah. And are they a, a potential challenger likely to be more dovish or hawkish than Abe has been? Uh, I guess it depends on the person. But yeah. Like, from what side of the political spectrum is he likely to be challenged? That's a, that's a good point. It, it really... It's a very interesting thing. So the one person who is uh, most proactively critical of Abe is uh, Ishiba Shigeru. And what is interesting about him is that he's actually, in theory, more hawkish than the prime minister. He's come out and said we should get rid of the second paragraph of Article 9, which is the one that causes most of the problems in terms of restraining Japan. He's said in, he's very openly in the past talked about maybe Japan should think about nuclear weapons and various other things. So... On military issues, uh, he is very hawkish. He's considered a military nerd, actually, in Japan. But in terms of uh, issues like I mean, social issues and things like supporting uh, small, medium enterprises, things regarding the supporting uh, child-rearing and young mothers and so forth in Japan, he's actually a little bit more... I mean, I don't think liberal is quite the right word for it, but he's more in tune with uh, popular sentiment about that sort of thing. So... It's it's hard to sort of characterize him mm. vis-a-vis Abe. If it's his current, ah, uh, sorry, his former foreign minister Kishida, he will definitely be more dovish than Abe. 
But the thing is, though, is that I personally think that too much can be read into uh, Abe's um, time as prime minister in terms of the direction Japan is going. It's definitely the case where he has put a lot of energy into diplomacy and trying to push forward on various developments. And so from that point of view, I think there has been an acceleration of the pace of change. But if you sort of look uh, more closely, then you can see some of the discussion was happening before Abe came to power and the sort of general contours of Japan's more proactive foreign policy, whether we're talking about military, diplomatically or economically, seem to be set now. And I think somebody who replaces Abe um, is not going to make any big changes and we'll still see these diversified relationships strengthened in security and military terms and economic terms, diplomatically and so forth. If Abe, whether it's now or three years later or, or whenever, uh, does leave the uh, Prime Minister's chair. Of course, each Prime Minister will bring their own touch, but I don't think there will be massive radical changes in Japan's foreign policy direction. Corey Wallace, thanks very much for joining us. No problem, thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate, rate us. Rate us? Rate us. Rate us. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I really rate you. <laughs> thanks, Ben. <laughs> but I wish everyone else would too. <laughs> Um, leave us a review leave us um, a review share the podcast with your friends your friends and family and follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House and as we spoke about earlier in the introduction I'm going to be away for a couple of weeks but fear not there will still be a really excellent episode dropping into your podcast feed in two weeks time which we've already recorded the interviews are fabulous and we'll be back then soon enjoy <laughs> yes. it and we hope you enjoy it And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrent.